pray together. God, you are the one and the only. You are the only holy God. And we come before you this morning in reverence and awe and recognition of who you are. We thank you that you have invited us into your presence through the finished work of Jesus. So as we gather here this morning, we look into your word and we ask one thing. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for you to strip away all of our foolish thinking and give us true wisdom. Just pray that you would uh, help us to see and understand uh, what you have for us. Pray that we would lift up the cross in a way that we can see it in all of its folly, but true glory. And so we just thank you for this time. We ask your spirit to be at work even now as we look into your precious word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. As we get started, I have, uh, I have a picture I want to show you. I want to start with. Let me know if any of you know and recognize uh, this, this man right here. <laughs> Maybe some of you know, know who this is. Um, pretty unsuspecting individual in this, in this image. But this, if you're not familiar, is none other than the 2023 NBA Finals MVP and NBA champion Nikola Jokic. And this, this, this image of uh, Nicola at a younger age has, uh, has kind of became viral over the last little bit because it's much like the way Nicola plays and, and, and his whole game in basketball is it's so unsuspecting. Like you look at this and you're like, you're telling me that is the best basketball player in the world? Like if you, if you had gone back and, and, and offered someone, you could pick anybody in the world to, to be on your team years ago when, 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 when this picture was taken, nobody... Nobody would say, I want that guy. That's, that's going to be the guy that I'm going to build my team around. And yet, we've seen him over and over throughout his career just defy all expectations and become one of the most successful basketball players of our age. And I show that just because it shows us that there are sometimes things that, 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 that when we look at them from our human perspective, no one would understand and see the significance and from a human perspective, no one would have ever thought that the solution for all of the world's problems would actually come through a Roman cross. But that is the very thing that Paul seeks to argue and lay out for us in this passage. As we, as we set the stage to enter into this text, we need to understand just a little bit about this book of 1 Corinthians. Um, we're just dropping right into it, so you may not know much about it, but 1 Corinthians as we know it, we're getting a lot of feedback here, that's alright, I'll just keep rolling. The book of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul to this church in the city of Corinth, modern day Greece. And Paul saw this church founded on, on what was his second missionary journey, you can read about it in Acts chapter 18. And uh, what we know as 1 Corinthians is actually kind of part of a correspondence of sorts, a back and forth that was taking place between him and this new church. He spent some time there, invested in these people, saw them saved, saw the church started, but then he moved away. And he was likely living further away in the city of Ephesus. And it was at that time where he had heard what was going on, and he likely wrote them a letter, encouraging them, giving them further instruction. He talks about that letter later on in this book. And uh, from, from that letter, then the Corinthians had a whole bunch of questions. And so likely they wrote to him a letter as well and asked him a, a bunch of questions. They were trying to figure out how to live in this, in this world with this newfound faith. And then Paul, in response to their letter, writes to them again in what we know as the letter of 1 Corinthians. 
And in this letter, he's seeking to address their questions and the issues that have been, uh, been confronting this young church. See, Corinth was a city that was, was a melting pot of sorts. A lot of different ideas, a lot of different perspectives were all at play and at work within this city. And this, this church was, was born not in a place where there was a church down the corner or anything else going on, but they, they were the first ones. This is a very pagan culture and society in which this church was formed. And they're trying to figure out what it looks like to live as a redeemed people of God within this setting. And so the, the, the first issue that Paul seeks to address in this letter is this issue of division that had taken place within the church. And so he talks about this in verses 10 to 17. Apparently these different groups had begun to, to form within the church. And these groups were, were formed based on who they followed, which spiritual leader they aligned themselves with. And so some of them said, I, I, I'm a follower of Paul. Others were like, I kind of like Apollos and the way he talks. I like Peter, others would say. And then the real spiritual ones said, you know, I, I actually follow Jesus. And so there had been this kind of spiritual elitism that had risen up in the church. And, and likely some were looking down on others. And so Paul wants to speak into this because he understands the destructive nature of this kind of thinking in the church. And so Paul addresses this issue and he invites the church to a unity, to be unified. And, and, and the basis for this unity is not the form or the style of the church or the, uh, the personality of their leaders, but that which unites them together is the shared content of their faith. And so he tells them, hey guys, I'm glad that I didn't, I didn't baptize a bunch of you so that you were fully aligned with me. And in, in fact, when, when I came to you, I came only to preach the gospel. And he says, and the way that I did that was not with words of eloquent wisdom. This was something that was prized in their day. He says, I didn't do it in that way with, with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ should be emptied of its power. So here at the, at the start in verse 17, Paul is saying that there is a way in which we can actually strip away some of the power of the gospel if we seek to add human wisdom to it. If we begin to elevate the style of, of the preaching above the content of the message, then we may well be on the way to disregarding the essential truth. And he's warning of them of that and calling them back to this central commitment. So in light of the divisions that existed in the church and that tendency that, that we all have to attach worldly wisdom to the things of the gospel, Paul reminds them that true wisdom is only found through God's foolish message. So I think there's, there's, there's three ideas that I've identified within this text that I want to lay out for us and try to walk through. And so I've tried, to, I've tried to come up with some points that are sort of memorable just so that we can kind of keep track of where we're at in this. And so if you'd like to kind of know where we're going, we're going to look first uh, at the polarizing effect of the cross. We're going to see then the pompous heart of human wisdom. And then finally, we will see the paradoxical way of God's folly. We see first here, starting in verse 18, the polarizing effect of the cross. I think in verse 18, when he says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is really Paul's thesis statement of this whole section and even going into the later chapters. 
But we have to ask, first of all, what does he mean when he says the the word of the cross? This is a very intentional phrase only used here by Paul. Uh, the, The term that's translated as word in the Greek is actually logos. And, and, and so he's always saying the logos of the cross has this effect. Now, logos certainly is, it could simply just be translated as word or message, but in, in Greek thought, it was really this philosophical idea that was this, this attempt to make sense of the universe. So here, Paul is actually employing this idea of Greek thought, and then he attaches it to this other image that they would be very familiar with and understand as this just simply a means of execution. The word logos is that from which we get the, our, our ultimate word logic. And so, so in, in, in some sense, he could almost be saying the logic of death has this effect. And so, so for, for, for an educated first century Corinthian, this phrase would be very shocking. What does he mean by this? And sometimes we miss this because I think in many ways we have domesticated the cross, right? Like what do we, what do we, see the cross as. We see it as a beautiful symbol. We embed it in our stained glass windows. We make earrings out of it. All sorts of different people, regardless of what they really believe, will wear it around their neck. We'll have window stickers on our car that, that market the brand of our church. Maybe our houses are decorated with different, different types and different designs of the cross. It's kind of a beautiful symbol. People get it tattooed on their bodies. It's kind of hip. It's kind of cool. But for those who ever witnessed a Roman cross being used with a man executed on it, hanging on display for days upon days, it was a gruesome reminder of who was in power. It was a symbol that was, that was reserved for the, for, the, for the criminals. It, wasn't, it, it was too brutal for, for, for Roman citizens. But all those who opposed Rome would be put to open shame. They would be disgraced and painfully and brutally murdered by this device. It was a symbol of ultimate defeat. And only as we seek to understand this phrase in that context can we grasp Paul's statement here. And he declares that that the word of this cross that he preached has a polarizing effect on the world. For some, it's folly. The word here could also be uh, translated as as, as madness. And for others, it's power. The message is absolute foolishness to some, and and it's divine power to another. How could that be? How could this, this complete polar opposite perspective be taken on the same thing? You know, we have we have some things in our culture and society that are pretty polarizing, right? Like you take the whole like pineapple on pizza thing, you know. How many are there in here like uh, all about it? Crazy Carl's pineapple, the crazy Hawaiian. Oh, it's incredible. But uh, but then others in here are like that is that is wrong. That should be outlawed. Yes, Peyton in the back, exactly. So um, there's other things, you know. If I if I mentioned hey the the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Some of you in here might be like, ah, this is one of the funniest movies that I have ever seen. That's how I kind of respond to that. And then if you're my wife, you say, that was the biggest waste of an hour and a half of my life that I've ever had. So, so we understand that there, there are things that can be polarizing, but this is in a whole different category. 
You see, the perspective on the cross as, as being seen as either folly or power is divided along the lines of those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The difference is not just a, a matter of opinion, but it's actually those who have been given eyes to see. Those who later in verse 24 will, it says those who are called. It's only those who have been given eyes to see who actually understand the significance of the cross and see it for what it truly is. But those who are lost, those who are heading to ruin, they only see foolishness. But to those of us who have been saved by this, we, experiencing, we experience the cross as nothing other than the very power of God. So the question is ultimately, how do you view the cross? How do you view this message? Another way would be to say, how do you view and understand the gospel? That good news of what God has done through the life, the, the, the horrific death of Jesus on the cross and His victorious resurrection. That which provides us the only path to be reconciled to a holy God. To be forgiven of our sins. Do you sit there and say, well, it sounds interesting, but it just seems like a silly idea. What does a first century Jew executed on a Roman cross have to do with me? And I think we as Christians have to realize that, that what we believe will always appear foolish to a non-Christian world. This is why Christianity often has been the object of mockery, the subject of ridicule by many non-Christians throughout the history of the church. They actually found an interesting piece of uh, archaeology of a number of years ago. I have a, I have a picture here to show you. Um, this was uh, discovered in, uh, in the city of Rome and dates back to around uh, the 2nd century B.C. If we can put up the image there, Landon, that'd be great. And uh, th this image is, is an image of, of, a, of an ancient graffiti that was actually uh, carved into the stone wall of, uh, of this building in Rome. And uh, this, is, this is what it actually looks like. It's kind of hard to read, so I have a second image that kind of uh, shows it in a, in a clear way. Um, I'm glad graffiti's gotten a lot better over the years, because this looks like my first grader did it. But uh, anyway, this is carved in, into the wall here. And uh, there's a man you know, standing there on the left, and up above him is, splayed out on a cross, another man with the head of a, a donkey or a horse. And the inscription underneath re reads... Um, as they've sought to decipher it, they believe it says, Alexamenos Sebete Theon, which translates to, Alexamenos worships his God. So the mockery and the, the, the insult of Christians is, is, is nothing new. This has been taking place since the first disciples who followed him. And it's like that because actually what we, what we begin to understand in this passage is because God has been at work and, and ultimately has produced this. In verse 19, there's a quotation that, that he gives from Isaiah 29. We don't have time to look into Isaiah at this point, but what he says is this. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So in God's sovereign wisdom, God upends the wisdom of the world by using the thing that they find is the most foolish as the only thing that can actually bring them salvation. 
And that's why it has this polarizing effect in the world. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised when when the world mocks and, and ridicules. Because to them, it is a joke. From the perspective of human wisdom, this is silliness. Maybe you have been at that point in your life where you once viewed it like that. And it wasn't until the work of God in your, in your heart and in your life to come and behold and change and give you new eyes to see the actual glory and wisdom of the cross of Christ. So there is a polarizing effect of the cross. And we see as Paul continues on that, that, that he continues to reveal the pompous heart of human wisdom. The pompous heart of human wisdom. And here Paul invites us to consider three different groups. He says this, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? And so he gives these three groups, the wise man, the scribe, the debater. And uh, these could be larger general categories, but likely when he says the wise man, what he's referring to is those who studied and practiced the pursuit of, of wisdom in ancient Greece, which, which in that time, in that setting, wisdom was not just kind of um, applied knowledge or the idea of kind of street smarts. Wisdom was really this, this whole idea of a, a public philosophy, kind of the development of a worldview that made sense out of life. There were groups like the Stoics, the Sophists, the Platonists, the, the Epicureans, and all of them valued kind of the, 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 the rhetoric in the public square and the ability to make a coherent explanation for the world and the way things were. They like to sit around and debate and, and discuss these things. These were the smart people of the day. He says the scribes, where are they? These are the experts in the, in the law, more of a Jewish reference. These were the theologians who, who studied all the documents. They, they knew the old and ancient texts. They had read everything. They understood how history was supposed to play itself out. They knew all about the Messiah and what that was going to look like. They knew what to expect because they had figured it out through their study. And he says the debater. Uh, this is likely a reference to a, a skilled rhetorician. The, the, in, in that day, there were those who, who, who would give speeches or, or seek to uh, promote ideas in, in a very well-crafted, articulate way. And they were, they were kind of those who were celebrated by others for the way that they could clearly and sophisticatedly express ideas on life and, and the world. And they could impress people with their words. Think of an ancient TED Talk. And so with these rhetorical questions, what, what Paul is doing, I think, is actually employing kind of a form of sarcasm. Saying... All these wise people, all these smart people, the best of the best of society in the world, saying if they're so wise, if they're so enlightened, then how have they done in their pursuit of ultimate knowledge? How have they done at actually understanding the world and the universe? And ultimately, he's saying, did any one of them through their intellect, through their intelligence, ever arrive at the cross of Christ? Did they ever see the cross as the ultimate answer to the world's problems? No, they, they have been, they've utterly failed in attempting to find ultimate meaning through their efforts, through their wisdom. Because as his fourth question says, says they've all failed because has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 
The way to the cross could never be found through human wisdom because God's wisdom appears only as foolishness to them. So when we look out maybe into our culture today, who would, who would Paul be calling out? That maybe we even at times look up to or admire. Would he say, where are the intellectual giants of our day? Where are the accomplished, the successful, the academics, the spiritualists, the Hollywood elites, the A-listers, the influencers, the activists, the billionaires, those who have, have power, those who have figured it out. How have they done? Have they arrived at a knowledge of God by pursuing the wisdom of our day? No, in all of mankind's efforts to find wisdom apart from God and to know God apart from the cross, they have always come up empty. And so in, in revealing the emptiness and the bankruptcy of human wisdom, Paul is actually calling this young church not to give in to allowing the wisdom of the day to influence and shape the way that they think, the way that they interact, the way that they relate to one another. And so there's a challenge here for us even. What is the wisdom of our day? The wisdom of our culture, the, the highest value that people hold to, the, the, the way that they would say that is, this, is the path to flourishing. How do they seek to make sense of the world? There's a lot of different answers that can be given for that. I think probably one that gets pretty close to the heart of it is what Carl Truman calls the modern self. This idea of expressive individualism. It's the phrase, you do you. You get to determine your own identity. You follow your own truth. Whatever you conceive of yourself inwardly to be, then you get to express that outwardly in whatever way that you can and nobody can tell you otherwise. And any, any, anybody that says that you can't do that is merely just the, an, an oppression against your authentic self. Is that not the air of our day and the culture in which we live? But where does that all lead? Only to a deeper and a more futile worship of ourselves. And it will never lead anyone to a true understanding of God, nor offer any solution to the problems of the human condition. But if God reveals the wisdom of the world as foolish, then why would we try to draw upon it? Why would we try to uh, uh, take the wisdom of the world and use that as the guidance for our lives? And, and I think there's a lot of ways that we tend to maybe subtly start to do that. I think one of the ways that we do that is by how we approach Scripture. Sometimes we see, we see the Word of God as, as a great place to start, and, and sure, there's some great things about Jesus, and, and that's really good, but there's a lot of things that just aren't really addressed in here, and so maybe we should just Try to find some other, some other places. And so we, so we drift from, from a focus on the Word of God as that which is our guide for life and living, and we start drifting and, and start pursuing the PhDs that have written books on self-help and how to understand yourself and the world as though they're going to offer a better insight and understanding into who we are better than God. Now, I'm in no way trying to disparage the, the idea of common grace that is found in psychology and, and all these other, other avenues but we too easily can, can, can kind of start to set aside the truth of God for what the world has to offer. And I think we better just take 
Notice, if our day is more influenced by our inspirational podcast than it is by our morning devotions. So there's, there's a call here to not allow and to guard against the wisdom of the world overtaking that which God has given us to guide us towards true wisdom. I think sometimes we do this in our churches as well. They say, well, man, we, how are we going to grow the church? How are we going to, how are we going to, you know, move on and move forward? I guess what we need is, is better, you know, strategic marketing. We need a better, a better presence on social media. Or maybe our, our, our music needs some work. We need, a, we need better music and more, a more flashy show when we come together. And I'm in no way trying to disparage the, the value of maybe some of those things. Excellent music. Excellent worship. Using social media if it, if it works. Whatever. I'm not trying to say we can't do that. But, but I'm just saying we, we have to be careful that we are not focusing so much on the use of all these other things as the means that God is going to use to, to grow His church. Unless, I'm, unless you think I'm just like, critiquing maybe other churches, we better be careful not to think that, that, that we're going to bring people to faith because we built a, a nice little playground outside. Or we have life groups down and we know how to live in community and, and connect and, and get along and hang out together really well. We must never shift and, and, and highlight and, and, and overvalue secondary things at the expense of that which is most essential, the only means by which any man or woman will ever come to faith, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. I love how D.A. Carson says that he says, whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. But God in the cross has revealed the foolishness of man's wisdom. And it was actually designed by him in this way. In his infinite wisdom, he designed it like this. He says that, that man would never be able to reach him and know him through their own wisdom apart from him acting and drawing them to him. But it, it pleased God that the means by which salvation would be found is through the folly of what we preach. Some earlier translations translated that he saves by the, fall, by the folly of preaching. But it's not the, it's not the, 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 the form of, of preaching that's foolishness, but it's the content. It's the message of Christ crucified that is God's ultimate wisdom that is viewed as folly by the world. And Paul continues to draw out this arrogance of human wisdom by then offering us these two examples. He says, consider the Jew and the Greek. The Jews demand signs, and Greeks, they seek wisdom. And I think these two groups really kind of represent the basic forms of, of, of human pride and idolatry that, that continually manifest themselves in our lives. Humanity continues to cling to these things in their rejection of God. The Jews, they, they demand a sign from God. We saw this throughout Jesus' ministry from different people. The demand for a sign is essentially the ways that we demand that God prove Himself to us so that we get to sit in judgment of Him to see if and determine if He is worthy of our allegiance. There were times that Jesus did perform miracles that brought about faith, right? We've been seeing that all throughout the Gospel of Luke. But there were other times where, where, where they came to him and said, show us a sign, prove yourself, prove who you are. And Jesus said, an adulterous and sinful generation demands a sign. Because there's a way of approaching 
Jesus and demanding of Him to prove Himself in a way that is not a heart and a spirit of faith, but rather puts us in a place of judgment over Him. And to them, Jesus said, no sign will be given. And so there are many in our world who will say, well, maybe I'll follow God if He does this for me. If He kind of shows me that he, that he can do this. If He can provide this in my life. He's got to show me a sign to, 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 to know that, that I'm actually going to follow Him. What, what, what is in this for me? But in all of that, God is not asking for our approval, but He's calling us to allegiance to Him. And then the Greeks, they are the ones that seek wisdom. It's the idolatry that God comes to us on our terms. That, that everything kind of makes sense from our perspective. That I'm not sure that I can worship a God like that. Kind of the idea that, of those who want to reshape God into their image, into the God that they want to worship and that they want to serve. If He can appeal to my preferences, if He can be attractive to me, if we can clean up all the parts of the Bible that I don't really like, then maybe I'll follow this God. And if He adds enough to my life to improve things a bit, then, then maybe I will follow Him. This is the regular and continual idolatry of the human condition. Demanding signs, seeking wisdom. But, but what is Paul's answer to these two groups? What does he say? Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He says we can't give them what they want, but we have to continually preach what we all need. We preach Christ crucified and we preach that consistently and regularly knowing that to some it's going to be a stumbling block, it's going to be scandalous, and to others it's going to appear as downright foolishness. And why is this cross foolishness to the wise of our day? Why is it a stumbling block to the Jew? Well, just think about it. Think about what we actually believe in. A slain Messiah. A dead hero. A defeated king. That's what the cross looks like to the non-believing mind. Who comes up with that? That's not how it works. That's silly. It's offensive. But Paul says that we cannot abandon the message and try to make the gospel appeal to the world because they just don't get it. So there's a call for us even in this, that we have to remember that we can never distort the gospel to make it palatable to our modern day. It's often maybe a temptation in the church to minimize sin, to kind of, let's just kind of not talk about the wrath of God. There's a lot of teachings in here that are maybe just a little too much for our modern sensibilities, right? Right? Can't we just kind of let some of this stuff go? Can't we just kind of rework it? This was written a long time ago. Uh, things are different today. People, you know, are approaching things differently. We have a better understanding of, 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 of humans. Can't we just kind of loosen up on the idea of God's design in the world? That He has a, a purpose in creating men and women separate and distinct. That he has a design for human sexuality. Can't we just kind of like push that stuff to the side and not really uh, hold to that? Sure, it would be easier to, to talk to my neighbor. 
But no, the, the, the truth of God's Word will be offensive, and to many it will be ridiculous. But it's not for us in our, in our wisdom to outsmart God and to say, hey, we have a better way to do this, and we have a better message that we can share. The call for the church is to stay committed to the message of the cross and the gospel as the only means of our salvation. The only path to true human flourishing is in following God's good design for all of us. And it's in God's sovereign design that the same message that is viewed as foolishness to some, He says to others, to those who are called, it is power and it is wisdom. Have you experienced that in your own life? Do you, do you believe and have experienced the power of the Gospel in your own life? But God here reveals the pompous heart of human wisdom and shows it to be the, the only truly foolish path. Paul concludes his uh, word to these folks in verses 26 to 31, and he draws out this idea and calls us to follow the paradoxical way of God's wisdom, or the paradoxical way of God's folly, as he says. You see, there's a, there's a great paradox and there's a deep irony in the cross that we have to continually marvel at. What the world dismisses and mocks as silliness is actually divine power and infinite wisdom. It says in verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And he says, if this, this doesn't sound possible, he says, if you want to know that it's true, and this is what he says to them. He says, look at you, fools. He says, look at yourselves. Consider your own calling, brethren. And look at what he says. He says, not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth, came from prestigious families and lineage. But actually, God chose. God selected the, the, the foolish. He chose the weak. He chose the lowly. I always just wonder how the Corinthians received this when they read this. Like, it's kind of a backhanded compliment from Paul, I guess. Like, you guys are, you know, unwise. You guys are not powerful. You guys are not noble. Almost like he's saying, you guys are a bunch of pathetic losers, right? And, and he's saying that because he, because he wants to make this point and drive it home. He says, God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. Chose the weak to shame the strong. Chose what is low and despised to bring to nothing the things that are. That everything that the world values, everything that they hold up high and worship, God is going to tear down and destroy. And He does that through us. Through His church. Through calling folks like us who are undeserving, continually rebellious, always lacking in faith. He uses the weak, the insignificant ones like us to display His infinite wisdom. And why does He do it like this? Why wasn't it the, the, the intellectual elites that could find their way to God? Why wasn't it those with just a certain IQ that could figure it out? Well, God says, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. You see, if salvation depends on human effort at all, then it's only going to lead to one of two places. 
Either to complete despair because we can never attain it, or to pretentious arrogance because we think that we figured it out. But only on the cross does God smash all human claim to boasting and pride, and at the same time overcome our weakness and our inadequacy. And it's only in Christ that we actually find what everyone is looking for. True wisdom. Righteousness. A, 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 a justification for all of the wrongs that we know are within us. Sanctification. A set up, being set apart and actually being changed and being made different. And to be redeemed. And to know that we're secure. It's only in Christ that He has become our wisdom, righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And it's only in Him that we ultimately can boast. So how should this text ultimately encourage us? As we seek to follow Christ in a world that sees us many times as fools. If the world thinks that our lives look foolish, then we have to remember that maybe we are actually living in the power of God. And gospel living may at times look foolish. To live incredibly generously with our time and our resources. To sacrifice over and over again for people who constantly are complaining and that we don't necessarily get along with. To seek to grow into relationship with one another. Even when we come from vastly different backgrounds. Vastly different interests. When we, when we try to love each other and love a world that actually despises us, it's going to look a little weird. Like, why would you do that? Like, why don't you put yourselves first a little bit more? The way that the Gospel calls us to live as God's people is going to look silly to the world. but it may just be the place in which we experience the power of God. As Paul in this passage was addressing a divided church, how does this shape our relationships together? This passage reminds us that there is one central thing that unites us together, and it's the cross of Christ. So if you're tempted to think that you've arrived where you are because you figured it out, that you built your own moral high ground, that you discovered the right theology, you, you listen to the right podcasts, you follow the best voices on YouTube, you hold the correct political views, you have all the answers, and you're just a little bit better than those around you, then maybe you've started buying into a little bit more worldly wisdom and need to remember afresh the message of the cross. And that is our only ground for boasting in Him alone. And in a culture and a society that in many ways is growing more and more hostile to this message. The call of this text is for us to remember the polarizing effect of the cross. It's going to divide humanity into those who are perishing and those who are being saved. To which one do you belong? We're invited to guard against the pompous heart of human wisdom and ultimately embrace the paradoxical way of God's foolishness. What was interesting about the, uh, the graffiti that they found on that wall there in Rome was that uh, a little bit later on, 
they were doing some further excavation and on, in a different chamber on a different wall, they found another inscription that was carved into the wall. And on there, it read simply, Alexamenos Fidelis. Alex, Alexamenos is faithful. And that's all that we're called to, called to, right? It's to be faithful to a message, regardless of how the world receives it, regardless of, uh, of how we are viewed. What we're called to is faithfulness to the cross of Christ alone. It's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this message that encourages us, challenges us, and ultimately strips away all of our pride, all of our arrogance, and causes us to worship you because only in the cross of Christ can we find true forgiveness and true healing. So I just pray that you would shape us, help us to be a people of the cross, to never remove that as the center of all that we do, center of who we have been, been made because of Jesus. We thank you, and we pray this in the glorious name of our Savior. Amen.